Hello everybody. One of the many lovely things about having a podcast is that it gives you a legitimate excuse to talk to some of the people you admire. And this week is really the perfect example of that for me because I got to call up Guardian columnist and author Hadley Freeman whose work and wisdom has inspired me an awful lot and taught me quite a few lessons along the way. Her second book, Be Awesome, is one that I regularly recommend to women I work with, sort of as a handbook really for shaking a lot of our patriarchal conditioning and just getting on with the business of being brilliant at life. So I called her up to ask about her path to print journalism and how the industry has changed with the internet and also how she deals with some of the comments her articles can attract. So hello Hadley. Hi. Thank you so much for coming onto the podcast. Oh, my pleasure. I was hoping that you could maybe just introduce yourself for anyone who's not already familiar with your work. Sure. So my name is Hadley Freeman. Uh, I'm a columnist and features writer for The Guardian. I've written a couple of books and that's about it really. (laughs) And how did you get to be a columnist for The Guardian? What's your background? So it's a, well, it's very long. So I mean, I've been at The Guardian for 17 years, so it's not like I just walked into the job I have now. (laughs) What happened was I was at university and I was editing the student paper and I went to university in this country, although I am originally American. And uh, my mother saw an advert in the Daily Telegraph for um, a competition for young female writers under 30. And she sent in a couple of articles that I'd written without me realizing it for the student paper. And it happened that I won. And on the back of that, I was offered a kind of freelance gig at The Guardian while I was still at university. So I started writing a few features for them. And then after university, I went to meet the people at The Guardian and they said, well, there's not really a job here for you at the moment, but we'd love you to keep writing freelance. And I then went and lived in Italy and Paris for a year and kept writing. And when I came back, by then I'd done some fashion pieces for them. And they said, well, why don't you take a job on the fashion desk? And so I started off there and I was there for eight years. And from there, I kind of worked my way through the building, really. So with eight years on the fashion desk, then a few years doing just sort of features and columns in G2, which is Guardian's feature section. Then I was the New York features writer, and I moved back to New York for a few years. Then I came back, and I was on the op-ed desk, and now I'm the columnist for Weekend Magazine. So I've just kind of been around the building at this point. Is that normal? Like, it seems like you've been able to try on lots of different hats within your role and not be pigeonholed. It's not normal, I think, at other papers, necessarily. Um I mean, I was on the fashion desk for a long time and the other people I met on fashion desks at other newspapers weren't, I mean, maybe they didn't want to, but it seemed like they didn't have as many opportunities as I was lucky enough to have at The Guardian to write all around the paper. I mean, I was able to do book reviews when I was on the fashion desk and do general interviews. Um, I was never just seen as, you know, just quote unquote, the fashion person in the way that maybe you would be at other papers. They're very encouraging of getting people to write for other sections at The Guardian, partly because it's cheaper. (laughs) I mean, they sort of use people in the building rather than hiring people on the outside. So it is unusual, I guess, but it was, you know, I was very fortunate, really. And I like just doing different things. There are people who move around in The Guardian, Um, probably not in such a sort of exaggerated and want of better words, sort of kind of high-profile way as I have. And it's not that I feel like I'm such a high-profile journalist. It's just I have a name that stands out. So people notice, you know, they're like, oh, that girl with the weird name who writes fashion. <laughs> is now that girl with the weird name who's at the front of the magazine. You know, Polly Toynbee, when she wrote for The Guardian, didn't start off writing big op-eds. I actually have no idea what Polly Toynbee did. But, um, or Alan Rusbridger, who was the editor of the paper when I arrived. You know, he started off as a features writer, then he was the features editor, then he was the editor of the magazine, and then he was the editor of the paper. So people do move around. 
It's just not everybody has a name that's as noticeable <laughs> as mine, I guess. I suppose it makes sense as well because you need to try on a few different things before you find the one that you're ultimately the most happy to do. Yeah, and I mean, if you start working at a place when you're 21, I mean, hopefully you're going to move around a little <laughs> bit. It'd be a bit weird if you stayed in the same place for 50 years. Writing the same things. Yeah, and you know, you get bored of doing the same thing after a while, don't you? I mean, people do move around and I'm very lucky at The Guardian that I haven't had to change companies to to find variety I've been able to do it within the building so you mentioned that you worked at the op-ed for a little while there and now you obviously have your column and it seems Mm. like you're somebody who is pretty content to sort of own your own opinions whether that's online (laughs) or in print has that always come naturally to you or is that a learned skill it's funny like when people meet or my friends you know say my parents you're not a very opinionated person in real life (laughs) I'm probably, it hasn't probably come naturally. I found it really horrible writing columns at first. I didn't want to be a columnist at first. Really? And then I just thought, I mean, I have faith in what I believe. And if I'm wrong, I'm wrong. And I've definitely made mistakes along the way. And I'm happy to own up to those. I don't double down on mistakes. I don't see the point in that. But I I guess it's just that I have confidence that uh, in my opinions, like I have confidence that Hillary Clinton would have been an amazing president and anybody who says otherwise can go jump. (laughs) I have confidence that so much of the depiction of female celebrities in the media is to do with media sexism. And I'm always surprised, really, in a very arrogant way that people argue back. (laughs) It seems to me what I'm saying is pretty damn obvious. I mean, it's not that I have confidence in my opinions, but I often think I'm saying the obvious, really, which is sort of embarrassing. It's like, I can't believe I've written 800 words on the obvious here. In a weird way, social media has maybe helped with that because you find yourself... I mean, some people really hate it that everyone, uh, some journalists hate it that people criticize what they write and they're, you know, sort of shouting at them. I find it's made me sort of have to step up to the plate more and be more willing to defend myself more and really think about what I'm saying more. And I think that's a good thing, really. And it's also the people who I see arguing against me are generally absolutely <laughs> like the, the deplorables, as Hillary Clinton said, the basket of deplorables, the kind of Trump supporters. And if I'm getting those people to argue back with me, then I think, yeah, I'm, I'm on the right path. <laughs> yeah, if you're upsetting the right people, then you're saying exactly. The right I mean, you know, if, if I'm hurting Piers Morgan's feelings, then it's probably fine. <laughs> <laughs> so do you read the comments? Uh, I used to read the comments, but we were all told to read the comments um, oh, really? when they first started having comments underneath the articles and interact with the commenters, which I did do for a long time. It was really mainly Marina Hyde and me who <laughs> seemed to be the only ones interacting with commenters. And then Twitter kind of burst through and then it just felt like it's pointless talking to commenters because we're going to talk to people on Twitter all day. And so now I, I don't look at the comments, actually. I look at Twitter and even then sometimes I just have to turn it off. It's like, you know, I do have a life. Like, I don't need to be dealing with people outside of work all the time. But I do try to engage, play a lot more than other columnists do. I, I definitely have a sense as well, like, I don't know if how fair this is, but the people who seem to comment these days on newspapers don't seem to be very representative of the readership. They seem to be extremes. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's kind of the stupid thing about it, because I can't remember what the exact stat was, but... It was something like only 0.001% of readers comment, which means you're seeing the tiniest representation. And Mm. I mean, when I started at The Guardian, it was so long ago. I mean, it was 2000 when I started that there wasn't really the web so much then. I mean, there wasn't really Guardian online so much. And so the only way readers wrote into you was when you'd get these letters from them. And 
there was this unfair, probably, attitude that people who wrote in letters were generally a bit wacky. Mm. You know, would send in letters in green ink and, you know, written, you know cut out newspapers and that kind of thing. <laughs> and editors just kind of dismissed them. And now there's such, you know, such store set on these commenters. Yeah. We're kind of the same people, which is quite funny because, like, nobody paid attention to the Green Letter Brigade, rightly or wrongly. Like, you know, I'm sure a lot of them had really fantastic insights. But... You know, a lot of them were also slightly out there. And it's the same thing with commenters. A lot of them are really great, and some of them are really out there, but they're all given the same weight. And I know from my friends, my friends all read The Guardian. You know, we're all like 30-something people in London. I mean, that's liberal, blah, blah, blah. Like, they're Guardian readers. They have such a different take on everything in The Guardian than what I see on people tweeting about or people mm. commenting about. So I know it's not representative. And I... I I don't take it personally, really. You go through a period when you do take it really personally at first. You're like, oh, my God, everyone hates me. And then you come out the other side. Either you don't and you stop writing or you're just like, sod it. Like, forget it. This is, not, this is nonsense. It's not the be all and end all. I'm happy to engage with these people, but it's not the definitive take on what I've written or what's in The Guardian. No, I think that's the key because there's that, that kind of heart of self-belief in there that it's not going to throw you off your path. Well, you ha- I mean, it's hard, though. I definitely, there was a, I remember this one trip I did to LA, and there was, like, a group of people on Twitter, like, a really small group, like, 10. Like, when you think that The Guardian is read by a million people a day, <laughs> like, 10 people seems pretty low, who were just really gunning for me and really angry about something I'd written. And they were all, like, you know, 20-something young women. And I always want to talk to young women. I don't ignore them. I don't dismiss them. But they were there was just like no appeasing them. And it was just getting quite upsetting in this sort of stupid bully schoolyard type of way, even though I know to them it seemed like I was the one who had the power because I'm the one who's writing the articles. I'm the one whose name is on, on their screen. You know, the I, I totally get it. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. I mean, like, I didn't even notice when that was a thing, but apparently that is a thing. <laughs> but... Um, so I get it, but I just had to like put down my phone. I went out to the beach and was just like, take a fucking break, Freeman. Like, this is fine. It's fine. It doesn't matter. These people aren't the be all or end all. My boyfriend was like, you are going insane. Like, just stop it. Just like put down your phone and stop interacting with these people. It doesn't matter. And then they go away. I mean, there are people who will just rove around and just shout at journalists. And they are always the same people. And I get it. It can feel frustrating when you yourself don't feel like you have a voice and you see other people who do have voices and you feel like they're a bit rubbish. I get that frustration. But you can't, if you if your job is writing, you can't let these people get to you. I mean, you have to get on to your job. Absolutely. I was watching Total Trash TV, but there's a show on Channel 5 at the moment where oh, yeah. they go and confront celebrity Twitter trolls in the street with the oh. celebrity next to them. <laughs> That's pretty funny. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty amazing. I mean, presumably they sign disclaimers to be on the show, so it must be an element of artifice in it, but I still love it. And yeah, gosh. the common thread through it is that the celebrity or whoever kind of they are consistently trolling has replied and engaged with them. And that has been enough for them to kind of keep it up and it become like a continued campaign. For sure, for sure. I mean, that's what people say is, you know, don't feed the trolls and da 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 But it, does, it doesn't always really stop, even if you don't respond. Mm. And there was this period, it was really funny, when there was like this one young woman who was just kind of really going after lots of different people at The Guardian, at The New Statesman, at sort of liberal publications. She herself is liberal. Oh. But she's kind of felt that all of us were 
we're not doing enough. I mean, you always hate people on your own side more in a funny way, in the way that like the left so hates Tony Blair now. Like you get, you know, labor supporters who hate Tony Blair more than they hate Margaret Thatcher. I, you, you definitely see that. And you get a lot of, you know, Corbyn supporters who hate the Guardian more than the Male. I mean, like yeah. this, this is how it works. If you, when you feel your own side lets you down, you're angrier at your own side than you are at the other side. And there was this one young woman who was really going after all of us. And they came point where we realized we were all living in fear of this same 25-year-old who's on the hallway road. And I just kind of thought, you know, she, it would make such a great piece. It's like she wrote a piece about kind of holding the Guardian. Account, yeah. but, but then, actually, we tried to get her to write a piece, and she, she wouldn't do it. Oh, really? um, not about that, but about, like, you know, write, she should write an opinion piece if she felt she could do it so well. And she wouldn't do it, which is quite funny in itself. I think one of the problems with social media now for young people is that they confuse tweeting with column writing. And it's such a different thing. I mean, there are people who are great tweeters, but column writing is a really different skill. I mean, it's like mm. 800 to you know, 2,000 words or whatever. And that's not to say it's a great skill. I mean, I still think what I do is kind of a hilarious job. But <laughs> there, I feel like there is a sort of a generation that is sort of more is almost getting too used to just communicating on social media and then the perfect writing an article it has become kind of alien to them anyway it's a slightly different subject (laughs) (laughs) it's a good one too actually we could fill a podcast with that yeah it was fun i mean she was the thing is like the trolls who bother you are the ones who are really smart like the ones who just you know can't even spell you know no then you know you just (laughs) can ignore (laughs) them but the ones who you feel have a point can get under your skin. But the fact is, you can't really let it if you have a job. You have to just keep going. And I have to write two columns a week plus a feature. I mean, I can't waste too much time crying into my pillow because someone didn't like me on online. And I guess as well, there's that sense it's not personal. What you're writing about sometimes is personal, but they don't know you as a real person. Yeah, there's that. And there are also just times when you just feel like people are so off base that you can just ignore. I mean, even when I read the most personal things, people have come and attacked me. I mean, they always will. So I remember in May or something, I wrote a piece about how I recently had a miscarriage. Mm. And I wrote about, you know, how women have all this biological bullshit and we have to deal with every single day. I got all these people sort of shouting at me on Twitter saying that I was being transphobic by saying, (sighs) you know, women's biology and you don't have to be a woman to have that kind of biology. I just kind of thought, okay, you are so up the wrong tree here I don't even I don't even need to engage with this nonsense this is ridiculous at this point if a person can even write about miscarriage without being accused transphobic then (laughs) the the dog has eaten the tail really right now (laughs) I guess that was one of my questions really was how do you decide what is too raw or too vulnerable to share because that piece it was incredibly moving and it was presumably written quite fresh after the mm. bereavement. Well, and honestly, my boyfriend would rather if I didn't write anything personal. He always thinks <laughs> it's much easier just to, I mean, definitely, you know, not to involve people in our family life or whatever. Um, it's whatever you feel comfortable sharing, really. I mean, you know, how much of yourself are you willing to sell? And I think a lot of young women, especially now who are starting out, what I always say to young female young women who come to me and say they want to be journalists, is I always say don't let editors make you think that all you have to write about is your personal stuff because I just I just I do see a lot of young 20-something women out there you know getting their first big gig in the Times magazine or whatever and they just write about themselves and that's not that's not a bad thing there's nothing wrong with writing about yourself but if you start off that way it's quite hard to get out of it Mm. and you have more to offer than your personal story and your body issues, your dating issues, your fertility issues, your this, your that. And I feel like women really get painted into a corner doing that in a way that men don't. And so 
I would say be cautious about it and know that once it's out there, it's always out there. And how are you going to feel having millions of strangers read about it? Yeah, so it's just what what you feel you can bear having out there, really. Have there been any missteps? Have there been things that you've you've shared or opinions you've put out there that you've later regretted and wished you could pull back in? I am. Um, it's not so much opinion I've regretted. as I, One that comes to mind is something that I feel I didn't think through well enough, which is, when I wrote about some shoot from some fashion shoot that Beyonce did for a men's magazine that was photographed by Terry Richardson and it was on the cover of GQ America or Esquire or something like that. And I wrote about, I don't know, just how annoying this was that someone like Beyonce would be photographed, would be willing to be photographed jumping on a bed in her underwear by Terry Richardson. Mm. And I got a lot of emails from young black women, particularly in America, saying that I wasn't appreciating what a thing this was for a black woman be on the cover of a men's magazine and celebrated as a sex symbol. And they were right. I really hadn't thought about that. I do maintain that doesn't mean she needs to be jumping on a bed in her underwear photographed by Terry Richardson. But they were right. I hadn't taken that aspect into account. And that's because of I'm not black. And therefore, I've never looked at it that way. Mm. But that did, that did open my eyes to thinking about it that way. I don't take back the fact that she, <laughs> she could have demanded that someone other than Terry freaking Richardson yeah. photographed her. I think we're all in agreement on that then. <laughs> yeah, I guess because what was really interesting to me at the moment is a lot of the women I speak to are maybe starting to share their opinions or their stories or just their work via things like blogs. Mm. And in some ways, there seems to be some crossover between like what a columnist does and what a blogger does. There's lots of other ways where it really doesn't cross over, including mm. that you mm. get paid. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. often the quality of the work, et cetera, et cetera. But a lot of these, these are the kind of questions, I suppose, that people are asking themselves about putting their voice out there and... Mm they're problems that people are struggling with in the blogging world but when you look at the world of journalism I think a lot of them have already been answered by women like you you've kind of worked through it and found where your comfort zone ends about what you share and what you don't share yeah and I I think also there's a weird trend now where people want to be columnists or opinion writers I like there is a lot more you can do than just you know express your opinion on something which I know is funny for me because I have two columns but that is not how I started I feel like opinion writing it is really easy in a sort of way. I mean, it doesn't require much work. You can just sit up, sit on your butt and express an opinion. But, you know, there are lots of other forms of journalism that people can do, you know, that involve going out in the world and talking to people, which to me is the most valuable form of journalism. I mean, the, the journalism that I enjoy doing most is interviewing people who aren't famous. So whether it's like the family of one of the people that O.J. Simpson killed or did an interview last week with Dove Charney, you know, like that's the most valuable form of journalism. And I know it's harder to pull off, but in terms of opinion writing and blogging, it's it's often the most interesting. And in terms of sharing yourself online, yes, that is a really hard balance. And I always felt actually the blogs that got it best at doing that were things like Gawker and Jezebel, which don't exactly exist anymore. Gawker doesn't exist mm-hmm. anymore. Jezebel does a bit. I mean, they were kind of amazing, really, and very inspirational, I think, to a lot of us who were starting out in journalism then in the you know 2000s, because they really mixed investigative journalism with funny, snarky journalism with personal journalism. And that's kind of, I mean, obviously, there's lots of people working on those blogs, but that's the kind of perfect columnist mix, really. And I would definitely encourage anybody starting out now to look at those, if this is really what they want to be doing, that 
to not just rely on the personal, to not be, you know, telling that story about that hilarious time about how you forgot to take your tampon out for four days or whatever. Like, that you can do that. Jezebel did that, and it was kind of an amazing piece. But it was also, you know, bookmarked with lots of investigative journalism about sexual exploitation by Terry Richardson or whoever, with hilarious takedowns of ridiculous people like Gwyneth Paltrow. And that's why those pieces were so, those blogs were so popular, really, because they mixed, they had that perfect mix. And the freedom, I suppose, when you are a blogger or you're not kind of tied to a publication is you don't have an editor to run it by. You don't have to get approval of the corporation. You can kind of decide yeah. on your direction and go with it. Which is a good thing in some ways and also a bad thing. I mean, yeah. it can make you incredibly self-indulgent. All I'd say to people is to write as much as possible to find your voice and to find what you're interested in writing. Don't just go for the easy stuff necessarily and don't just do personal stuff. I mean, you know, go out there and tell stories which is ultimately what journalism is about and tell the stories that aren't already being told i suppose yeah that aren't already been told and aren't just about you i mean it doesn't need to be i know everybody puts such emphasis on the personal and the experience the personal experience nonsense stuff now but there are other things out there i think that's about clicks as much as anything isn't it is that it's those are the ones that are easy for people to engage with the headline yeah i guess so but i think it also just really annoys people to be honest i mean you know liz jones was only able to maintain that shtick for so long and she did it better than most and when most of the people weren't doing it. I mean, at a certain point, you, there's only so much of yourself you can plunder. So it's also just boring. Like, it really is boring writing about yourself, <laughs> to be honest. It's way more interesting getting involved in other people's lives. So I wonder, like, if you were a millennial, if you were, mm-hmm. what it would be like, what's a millennial, like, turning 18, 19 now, I guess? Um, what would is you be? It? I thought millennials were like 1984 onwards. Like, well, I, I never have any idea what any generation is. But I don't. I'm really trusting you. So 18. Let's do 18. I though. got dropped yeah. from a campaign recently because I wasn't a millennial, and I was born in like 83, <laughs> and I was kind of offended. I was like, "Wait, I, I eat avocados? <laughs> what do you mean I'm not a millennial?" So what? What are you then? Are you Generation X? I don't know. I don't think I have anything. <laughs> I've, I've been cut out. <laughs> okay, so millennial is 18 now. Let's that, let's say it's 18. Now? It's an 18 year old okay. Twitter user okay and like I, actually I think I think you mentioned in your column recently someone was ranting about millennials and why people why people seem to hate yeah, them but yeah. the, as a generation there's kind of a lot of positive movement going on as well like, yeah for sure there's Absolutely. this whole notion on Twitter that I keep coming across of kink shaming they're like you can't shame people for their kinks like when I was 18 people were still shaming each other for where their shoes came from and and now yeah well I, to be honest I think millennials probably do that too but <laughs> they are much more sexually aware is that the word sexually tolerant in some ways yeah i mean i would say there's a there's a downside to that (laughs) when you say you can't talk about you know we shouldn't be legislating against sex work for example because some sex workers really like what they do Mm. which would say (laughs) really (laughs) really (laughs) this is a debate i had yeah so yes they are there are upsides and downsides but young people are supposed to go too far i always feel that way that's that's what being young is about they're supposed to make the arguments go too far true that is that is what it's all about that's a good perspective so if you were 18 year old Hadley now and you were Mm. I guess like trying to embark on this career path that you maybe hadn't quite planned out at that stage what would you be doing how would you be would you be blogging would you be on social media how would it manifest yeah it's it's very hard because I wouldn't get the job that I have 
that I started out with now. I mean, the Guardian doesn't really put many people on staff. I got put on staff right away. Now it takes people years to get on staff. So I know I was very lucky to start out when I did. I started out before the internet began eating the newspaper. Mm. So what would I be doing? I probably wouldn't be blogging, honestly. Why is that? That's interesting. Well, I it's not like I wanted to be expressing my opinion so desperately, <laughs> to be honest. What I wanted was to be writing stories in a newspaper and interviewing people and writing book reviews and writing film reviews. And that's what I wanted to do. I had no interest in being like a floating head above a column. But that could be a blog, couldn't it? It could. It could. Yeah, I mean, it could. You could make your own newspaper. So maybe I would be doing that. But I'm quite a conventional person. And I imagine what I would be doing is haranguing the new statesman or the LRB or whatever to give me book reviews, which is kind of what I was doing at university. And I was doing little book reviews occasionally for the statesman and stuff like that and and the observer. So I imagine I'd be begging to do that kind of stuff and living with my parents for as long as need be. So what I imagine I'd be doing is sort of sending desperate begging emails to the observer, to the new statesman, the LRB asking them if I can review books, if I can come in as a books assistant. I'd be doing the same to Empire Magazine. Can I come in as an assistant on the magazine? And then living at home, and I know that's lucky because my parents live in London and I'd be able to do that. Or, you know, sending emails to Vice, stuff like that, publications that didn't exist when I was starting out. So I probably wouldn't, in all honesty, be blogging because I like having the structure of a workplace around me. And I didn't have faith in myself wrongly or rightly when I started out I wanted to learn from from older people who I respected so like at the observer I kind of I did work experience at the observer quite a lot at university and I would just follow around Natasha Walter and Andrew Ronsley and people there and like beg them for tips and and they and Philip French which they very kindly all gave to me so that's probably what I be doing whether that would then result in the job I have absolutely no idea but I have enormous respect for bloggers who have that kind of sort of uh, I don't know it's like in you know their own internal dynamism that they can just get, get up in the morning and do this on their own that's incredible to me that's why I always needed a job because I don't have that <laughs> And I, yeah, I, I totally hear you on that sort of needing a little bit of validation, especially when you're younger from someone to tell you like, yeah, you're doing this right. Yeah, or just like I, I had to do it at all. I mean, like, I really had no idea how you were supposed to write a review or a structure or a feature or any of it. I mean, I know I did student journalism, but you don't really know what the heck you're doing there. <laughs> I really just needed someone to sit me down and explain how you go into this, how you start a feature, like what, how, how do you write an opening sentence? And Jess Carter Morley, who was my first boss, like really helped me with that. Cass Viner, who editor of the magazine when I started out, the editor of the paper, she really took me through that. I mean, that's kind of what I needed. I mean, some people get that from journalism school, which I didn't go to. So I just needed to go somewhere where someone could teach me how to do it. So I'd probably be looking for that. But, you know, I really don't know if I'd find that anymore. And I have enormous sympathy for young people today when it's so much harder to get a job in journalism. Yeah, it seems to be... Well, the whole world of journalism and print is changing so quickly, isn't it, with the internet? Yeah. I mean, it's kind of dying, to be honest. So whether <laughs> whether any of us will have jobs in 10 years' time remains to be seen. Maybe you'll be blogging. <laughs> Maybe I'll finally be blogging, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess kind of the last thing, and we, we've, we've touched on it already perhaps, but one of the things we talk about an awful lot on this podcast that we kind of come back to is how as women... A lot of the time, one of the things that holds us back in sharing our work, whatever that might be, is fear of how it's going to be received and wanting to be liked and wanting to be approved of. And it seems to me that kind of because of what you you do at the moment and because you're kind of required to take a stance 
one way or the other, mm-hmm. that that doesn't stop you from putting your voice out there. And I just wondered if you had any kind of advice for people who were struggling with that, who were feeling like they were holding themselves back because they wanted to yeah. appease everybody. I mean, it's yeah, it, it's hard. And, you know, there's stuff I, like I've got my Saturday call on Monday and I know there's stuff in my Saturday call that's coming up that people aren't going to like. But I know in myself that this is what I really feel is right. And so when you start saying things that you don't really believe in, that a column falls, falls apart, mm. you have to just say what you believe or else don't, don't write a column. I mean, like, no, <laughs> nobody's making anyone write a column. It's okay. If you, if you don't want to share your opinion, then feel free not to. Like, God knows there are too many opinions out there anyway. But if, you, if this is what you want to do, then you have to be honest about it. I mean, you know, don't be racist, but hopefully you're not racist anyway. And most people are quite reasonable. And yes, there is there are certain dogmas out there that we're supposed to adhere to as good liberal people or whatever. But some of them are kind of bullshit, really. And you're allowed to say that. You know, you're allowed to say we don't need to pretend that most sex workers enjoy their work, mm-hmm. or you know, or you know, we don't need to say that if a little boy, you know, likes wearing his mummy's shoes occasionally, that probably means he's transgender. I mean, like this kind of stuff. You can argue against that. That's okay. You can just say. No, that's about gender rather than biology, and masculinity should allow little boys to play with dresses and makeup. That's cool. Like, why shoes can't are that pretty. be incorporated within gender? Shoes are pretty, and also they're children. But also, even within that, you know, why should adult men be allowed to play with makeup? I mean, that's about gender stereotypes. That's not about biology. Mm. Obviously, transgenderism exists. No one's arguing against that. But what we should be arguing about really is how super gender stereotypes that make men feel like they can't play with makeup, otherwise they, it might mean that they're transgender or gay. Like, that's bullshit, right? That's clearly nonsense. And you can say this stuff, and it is scary, and you will get loads of people screaming at you and blah, blah, blah. But if you really believe it and you can stand it up, then that's fine. Then you're fine. And also, the thing is, not everyone's always going to agree with you. Like, that's life. There are a lot of people in this country, and there are a lot of people in this world. And that's okay. People can have different opinions. It's fine. It's fine. It's not a big deal. They don't tell you that as a girl growing up, though. They tell you everyone needs to like you and you're only worth as much as there are people who like you. Yeah. Yeah. But there's one thing that social media teaches you is that everybody has very different opinions. And, you know, I find sometimes when someone's shouting at me about, you're so wrong in this column. And I'll just say, like, well, we'll just have to agree to disagree then. And they're a bit like, what? <laughs> no, <laughs> we have to shout at each other until one of us brings the other one round. Like, but you, we never bring the other one no. round. No one ever brings anyone round That's on not social what media. It's about. <laughs> <laughs> See, you just have to go, oh, well, okay. Bye. <laughs> and there's Bye. something in okay. as well, like what I guess whatever whatever profession you're going into, whether it's journalism or something else, that if you don't have any opinions one way or another, if you're just always on the fence, yeah, well that's rubbish. Then you're not a whole person, are you? Like there's nothing for anyone to connect with. Yeah, I mean that's just boring. But it's boring for you too. I mean, just say it. I'm not saying have a strong opinion for the sake of having a strong opinion because that's bullshit too. Like just say what you think. Like that, that's all, you know, if if you don't have a strong opinion, that's fine. You can have a not strong opinion, but as long as that's actually what you think. Yeah. And if you think it, then say it. And then you can always back it up because you believe it in your heart. Yeah. Or, you know, don't be an opinion person. (laughs) (laughs) There are lots of other jobs out there in journalism. You know, you don't need to do that. I mean, that seems to be the trendy thing at the moment, really. But it's really not the only, you know, dish at the buffet. 
Well, thank you so much for sharing all of your wisdom or a tiny snippet (laughs) of your wisdom, I should say. Where can people find you if they want to read more of your work or see more about what you do? Well, I guess obviously the Guardian website and, you know, I I can't bear to say they can see my work on Twitter. That's where I go to procrastinate. I guess the Guardian website is really the most obvious. and I also write for American Vogue and my books are all published by Fourth Estate, which is HarperCollins. So that's that really. I will stick links to all of those things in the show notes as well so people can look them up. And I have to say that Be Awesome, which was your first book, I think. Oh, yeah. Second, actually. Second. Yeah. First one was ages ago, but yeah. I, I absolutely love it. Like, my copy has no, bits underlined. You. It was like... Oh, thank you. And perhaps unusually, because I underlined bits when I read it. And then when I went back and read it, like, maybe a year or so later loads of it Mm. I was like oh I totally know this now so it wasn't like I actually (laughs) learned the lessons I didn't just underline them and then forget about it so that was nice oh thank you that's so sweet I've linked to all of Hadley's columns and books and links in the show notes which you can find at meandorla.co.uk forward slash podcast 26 as well as I've included the beautiful and really poignant piece she mentioned where she shared her recent experience of miscarriage so do give it a look Both Hadley and I would love to hear your non-trolling responses over on Twitter, where I'm at me and Orla and she's at Hadley Freeman. And I did tell her that you are all the loveliest lots of listeners ever. So please do reach out and let us both know what you thought. And if you enjoyed this and other episodes, please go and do that magical internet thing and share and like and subscribe to spread the love. It all helps hugely to get the podcast out there to help other people like you and like me who are struggling with the sometimes contradictory but always fun worlds of creativity and the internet. As always, I love you for listening and I will see you next week. Bye.